Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with the vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna. Ellis. Well, happy Friday, friends, and welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. And we always have to be concerned about biblical truth, doctrinal sufficiency, and making sure that we do not dilute the truth of the Word of God and in any way advocate for doctrinal positions that are contrary to what God specifically delineates in His Word because He is the authority. And uh, there was no uh, greater explanation or evidence of this uh, in in one uh, particular instance this last week than at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, if you listen to the program yesterday, I played the uh, the seven minute clip that was kind of the back and forth between uh, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church and then Al Mueller, um, who is on one of the executive committees there, uh, talking back and forth about uh, whether or not a common confession of faith and a coordinate mission. Uh, would uh, be in agreement to allow uh, women to be pastors and take that role and that um, that uh, status as a member of the ecclesia. And ultimately, um, the SBC voted to disfellowship uh, Rick Warren and several other churches on the same basis, 88.46%, uh, so over 88% of the voting uh, messengers there at the SBC convention. So I want to bring in my good friend, Ryan Helfenbein, who was there at the SBC. He's the vice president of communications at Liberty University and the executive director of the Standing for Freedom Center. And even more importantly, a Christian who is concerned about biblical truth and good, sound doctrine. And Ryan, um, you know, th- this is, I think, an, an important just example of how we as Christians need to be talking about doctrine and talking about what our common confession of faith is, because if we ever get away from that and start to say, well, we, we, we need to be more of big tent uh, conservatives, big tent church uh, churches, and we need to have be accepting of a lot of different viewpoints, then we're no longer standing firm on the fundamental principle that the word of God is authoritative. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I, I'm, I want to go back to something. You're, you're absolutely right um, that we not only have a great commission, but we have a common confession. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus says, Go ye therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he then says, Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. That teaching them to obey part is really important to having a confession of faith. And so we have denominations for a reason, because there's doctrinal disagreements, and those are not insignificant. And uh, I have Catholic friends, Presbyterian friends, friends of other denominations, and I respect at least our points of difference and recognize what they are if we simply say, well, we are going to have this mission of reaching people for Jesus, great. What are you going to teach them? 
And uh, so we have to recognize those distinctions. I really appreciate the debate uh, that happened from the floor between Dr. R. Albert Moeller of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Rick Warren, uh, who, is, who is the retiring pastor at uh, Saddleback Church there in California, because it, it highlighted the key fundamental differences. Rick Warren is saying we can have essentially a commission a, a, a mission without really having a confession. And Al Mohler is simply arguing, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying anything about uh, the, uh, the gospel ministry of Saddleback, uh, you know, those who have um, been saved through that ministry, baptized into that ministry, uh, wonderful things certainly happening in Southern California, but this is whether or not we are in good standing with a clear confession of faith that has not changed for over 70-plus years. And uh, this is on the issue of, of uh, the ordination uh, and, and uh, the uh, women serving in the role of pastor and elder in the Church. So I really was proud of that vote at 88%. Not only to this fellowship, but then also to affirm that the confession is good and stands on its own grounds. Yeah, and this is so important, Ryan Helfenbein, uh, not just within this one issue of women and the roles in the church and the more egalitarian uh, view by contrast to what, uh, what what you and I and obviously what the Southern Baptists would say uh, Scripture teaches, but for every issue. And so this isn't just a matter of you know highlighting this one issue. I, I bring attention to this, and, and we've covered this a couple of times throughout this week on this show, because I think what you expressed underscores why this is so important. If we are going to change the world for Christ, we're going to reach the world for Christ, we're going to influence for Christ, what are we influencing toward? And it reminds yeah. me in the Christian framework of a lot of these um, you know, conservative influencers and these social media influencers. They want to gain a ton of following and they want you know, people to listen to them. Well, what are they actually saying? What are they teaching? Mm -hmm. What are they influencing toward? And the Bible tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord yeah. so that we can, as you said, teach them to obey all that God has commanded. And if we don't know the scripture for ourselves and we don't know what Jesus actually teaches, then this is going to be whatever, you know, each individual says and whatever I think that, that Jesus said or, or whatever I think is best. And then I'm basically influencing under my own name instead of for the name of Christ. And so this, I think, is just one salient example of what happened in the SBC that every church needs to be very concerned with to say, no, we have a bright line distinction of what is a Christian and what is not a Christian, what, what the Bible teaches and what it does not. And if that offends people, then that's okay. I mean, th th the Bible even says the gospel is offensive. Truth is offensive. But we have to make sure that we have these very clear demarcations of, for example, what is a woman? What is not a woman? I mean, these definitions of what truth is and what truth is not really does matter. And so um, you were there at the SBC. Uh, what what types of conversations uh, were were having were you having there in terms of um, do people get this and and understand that the church in America can't be diluted with 
this just, oh, let's invite everybody in and we don't have to take a stand on a common confession of, of faith and the absolute authority of the Word of God? Yeah, that's a great question. I was encouraged, Jenna, by the overwhelming vote of those messengers that were present and represented at the convention. When I looked at Rick Warren from the standpoint of where he was coming from, he did not have um, any kind of uh, majority support from from the delegation of messengers that came from all the different uh, Baptist churches across the country. So, um, you know, just to clarify for your for your listeners, um, that the church was already disfellowshipped, and basically the the motion from the floor was whether the, the messengers were going to affirm and approve that decision already. And so they stood by it, and uh, it was an action already taken, um, of, of basically of disfellowshipping, only because, again, they were not in friendly cooperation with the Baptist faith and message, that is Saddleback uh, Church. So I was I was encouraged by that. I'll just say that there was a an amendment uh, by a pastor of uh, Arlington Baptist Church in uh, Virginia. His name is Mike Law. Brought a, an amendment basically that clarifies that no woman should be hired for pastor of any kind in the denomination, and that was going to be added into uh, the Baptist faith and message for a point of clarification. Some were against it simply because they said it should be abundantly clear enough. We shouldn't even have to add that. But uh, but over 80% of the messengers said no because of all of the confusion in culture. And to your point, uh, we, we have a larger culture that doesn't even know what a woman is. We need to be abundantly clear by the meaning of pastor. And so this is a moment, I think, for the Church, the moment of testing. Um, you know, are we ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we ashamed of God's Word? Are we ashamed of what God has designed for men and women who are equally gifted, equally gifted, uh, but God has reserved and prioritized a headship in the Church, just like in marriage and in the family, and we have to honor that, honor God's authority in what he has designed for marriage and also for the church. Yes, and if we rebel against that uh, that order and that authority, that goes all the way back to original sin, that uh, the positional authority that man wanted was to be like God instead of within that created order. And we have to make sure that we are reflecting the truth of God and how he has ordained positional authority and uh, in the church structure and in the family structure with male headship. And it's not to say that, that women can't exercise all of our gifts. Um, I'm here on radio every morning exercising my gifts, teaching the truth of the gospel of Christ and uh, teaching the truth of um, hopefully our community together and truth in society that we call politics. And I'll be here each and every day, but I don't call myself a pastor. I don't have the role of a man in the church or in the family. And it is so distinct and it's so important that we stand firm on the truth of the gospel of Christ and on the sufficiency of how God himself has given the authority um, and has delegated that order. So Ryan Helfenbein, thanks so much for this. Um, I think it's so important 
that we as Christians make sure that we do stand firm. And like our founders said when they argued at the Constitutional Convention, we have to make clear so that generations later understand. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the Morning. So joining me now to talk more about the woke left's assault on the West and this documentary that you absolutely have to see is a scholar and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Victor Davis Hanson, who I know all of you who listen uh, to this show are well acquainted with. And um, I am just a huge fan of his work as well and insights. So, uh, Victor, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, so this film in particular, I think, is so timely because uh, the left is clearly with, with their ideology and their uh, just their their massive assault on Western civilization has permeated everything from our institutions, our justice system to education, to our government systems and our churches, our families. And so big picture, um, what is your view on the, the cause of this and where the assault has stemmed from? Well, I think the cause is that this kind of transmogrification of the Democratic Party into a Jacobin or neo-socialist activist, something we've never really seen, maybe during the Great Depression, some years of the FDR administration. But these are revolutionaries and they don't have popular support. That is, nobody favors the open border. Nobody favors energy dependence on the Middle East. Nobody fa- favors what's going on with crime in the big cities. No one favors the economic policies, the huge debt that's been, you know, racked up. Nobody likes the identity politics, fanaticism, the transgendered men and women's story, the whole thing. And they know that, but they're also revolutionaries. So what they do, try to do is two things, push this agenda by virtue of the institutions which you mentioned. That would mean the corporate boardroom, Disney, Anheuser-Busch, L.A. Dodgers, Target, or the foundations, the Soros Foundations, um, the Gates Foundation. These are the biggest foundations in the, in the country. And then the, the, the permanent bureaucratic or administrative state, the FBI, CIA, DOJ, IRS, Pentagon even, and then professional sports, as we saw with not standing for the flag, or we see in Hollywood. Uh, and so all these institutions that they have captured, but they don't have popular support. So one of the things they try to do, which I don't think the right understands, they try to change the process. Republicans play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. They kind of shrug and say, well, Nobody wants these crazy ideas, so we'll beat them at the polls, but they don't, they don't do what the left does. That means they try to go in and change the way we vote so that 10 years ago, 30% voted absentee and 70% voted on election day. Now that's been flipped in most states and that uh, the authenticity rate of each ballot has just died by a magnitude of 10. So we're basically saying, Thanks to the left, election day is just a construct. Or they eliminated the filibuster originally and because they didn't find it useful. They love the electoral college when they had the blue wall, when it crumbled. They wanted, they're going after that with this national voters compact so that states would honor, I think it's unconstitutional, the national vote and not the state 
ballot count within their own jurisdiction. They want to bring in Puerto Rico and D.C. They love the Supreme Court when it was the Warren Court or when they were able to flip justices like John Paul Stevens or David Souter. But once it became too conservative, they want to pack it up to 15 justices. And that's what's dangerous about them is that they look at they look at American society and it's a 24-7, 360 degree cultural, social, economic, political effort to revolutionize everything. And we've seen this before in history. We saw it in the French Revolution, and it's just typical. We saw it in the Soviet Revolution. You always start with a foundational date. You say, you know what, that's wrong. This sick system, and sometimes they start with the year zero, as in Germany. Uh, but we've changed it now, according to the left, to 1619. They try to change names. They topple statues. We've seen that. Fort Liberty, not Fort Bragg. And uh, they're try- they try to go into the schools at a very early age and indoctrinate people with things that just everybody would think are, are crazy. They're just contrary to nature, like three sexes or men, biological men dressing it with young people, young women in locker rooms. So th- that's what I think they're up to in a variety of fronts. I'm not sure that we on the conservative side understand their ambitions and their agendas. I think you're absolutely right about that. And Republicans, I mean, myself included, you know, as as an attorney, I I love processes. And I think that, you know, the rule of law uh, is and should be at the forefront of how we navigate controversy and how we navigate challenges in the adversarial systems and institutions are designed for good. And all of these hallmarks of uh, really conservative values and what are uh, our constitutional republic as a government system was founded upon. But I think you are absolutely right that Republicans and, and conservatives, by and large, don't understand and aren't well equipped to deal with the changes in the processes and in the systems that we're encountering and actually have good solutions. Because um, you mentioned, Victor, that they're uh, they are fundamentally outcome oriented. And so they love the Supreme Court when it's for them. They hate it when when it's not. And and so they just manipulate the process however they can. And how and, and it doesn't matter what they said five minutes ago. It just matters whatever the outcome is. And so um so so before we get into solutions, I want to ask you though, because I, I think you're totally correct that they are in the extreme minority. You wouldn't know that when you see things like uh, Joe Biden hanging the pride flag this weekend from the balcony of the White House. You would assume that that represents the majority, at least view, if not supermajority in America. So how were they and, and who is they able to take these revolutionary ideas and infiltrate the systems that they have? I mean, this has to have a coordinated uh, ability to, to do this in strategy and funding. So who are we talking about? Well, we're talking essentially about a bicoastal elite that I think we also underappreciate made out like bandits and globalization. This is the media, academia, the corporate world, the legal system, insurance. All of these, these are not people who make money by trucking or manufacturing or oil or farming the old sources of uh wealth in California. So there's $9 trillion in market capitalization between San Francisco 
and Sunnyvale alone. And I don't think people understand now, if you look at the Fortune 400, all of those fortunes are not what they were 30 years ago, where maybe 800 million got you number 400. They are of a magnitude we've never seen in the history of civilization, 160 billion, 20 billion, 40 billion. The number of people were 10 billion, and they're all left wing for the most part. And so they have more money than anybody can imagine. You can tell that by zip codes, looking at congressional districts, they're all blue. And so when Mark Zuckerberg exercises, uh, you know, a hundred billion dollar fortune, he can send $419 million to pre-selected precincts to absorb the work of the registrars. And he did. And they, the Soros, Money, I mean, they revolutionized jurisprudence as we knew it. They just destroyed it in the major cities. And I, I don't think we understand that in every race from now on, we have to raise as much money as we can from the middle class and upper middle class because they have the money. The, the second thing I think they did, they created, the they, they took over the language. And so if you oppose this, you're a racist or a fascist or a sexist. And they were able to do that largely because they they run the universities. And the university, everybody laughs and said, who cares what goes on at the Stanford English Department? Or who, who cares what they say at the Harvard Sociology? Well, that the time from when a crazy idea like men competing in female sports or three genders or the idea that it's 1619, not 1776 when this country, that gestation period between the faculty lounge and policy or out in the popular culture is about five, five years. And, and, and it's very rapid, these ideas. So they, and it's insidious. I don't think we understand it. If I was on a podcast the other day and I didn't know the answer, which is always stupid to do is to ask a question you don't know in advance. But I said to the host, why don't we Google 2020 insurrectionary riot, meaning the 120 days of Antifa, Black Lives Matter, $2 billion in damage, 35, 40 killed, 1,500 police officers, fed three federal courthouses attacked, police precinct burned attack on the White House ground, pretty insurrectionary. And what comes up on the first 40 Google searches, January 6th, even though it's not, that's not the year, it's 2020. They will put in there insurrection 2000. So there's a log, an algorithm that says anytime you have the word insurrection, it doesn't matter under what context we're going to stick in January 6th. And they do that with everything. It's insidious. They do it with blocking the uh, laptop in accordance with the FBI's, you know, $3 million contracting out of Twitter, Twitter one, not the recent 2.0. But and so I, I don't think we appreciate the role of money and their control of the bicoastal industries or professions in which they have this huge global audience and income. Conservative, look at the map, it's 90% red geographically. It's 10 per 20% blue, maybe, but that's half and half population. And so those, that's where all the universities are. That's where all the centers of commerce are from L, from San Diego up to Seattle and from basically Boston all the way down to Florida. And that's where the power in the United States is, and they control that. 
and they made a discourse in which for uh, you or I or anybody to question that they never they never address the merits of the of the antithesis or the opposition they always go ad hominem you're a racist you're a sexist you're this and that and when you can't find racism they're brilliant with language so they say well you can't see it anymore that's true but we have special skill sets. We're detectors, so we have to put adjectives in front of them. It's systemic racism. We can tell you might not find it. If there's no aggressions, well, there are because they're microaggressions. And and they manipulate language in that fashion that, you know, it's almost we don't even we've even taken the word woman and and there's no Webster's dictionary or Oxford dictionary definition anymore. They've changed it. It, it reminds me of what the Supreme Court did back in uh, Grizzled versus Connecticut when they did they couldn't find a reason that they they could actually have a jurisdiction over the uh, the contraceptive case, and so they just said, "Well, we'll find a right that emanates out of this vast penumbra, and we'll literally read between the lines and look at our crystal ball and say we can." Uh, determine that there are words that that are in the Constitution. They're just not in front of us, and we'll we'll make them visible so that we can then have the holding and the opinion that we prefer. And so, uh, I mean, th- so this isn't really new. And I think you're totally right about that. That it, it, what we're facing has been downstream from the last fifty and sixty years, and we saw what happened with the sexual revolution and and, and the rise of all of this leftism that started in the in the fifties and sixties, and and so as as they are master manipulators of language and of processes and institutions and everything you're describing, um, there is a segment on the right that would say that we need to challenge that by simply saying, well, then we need to overcome in any fashion as well, because essentially our, our government systems and our institutions and our language has fallen and so, therefore, we need to just win at all costs. And they would, um, and a lot of the Claremont Institute, you know, some of these people are, are suggesting that, like knowing what time it is, kind of the catchphrase, and just saying we need to win for conservative values and, and basically say, well, the process is not going to be fair. So that's really the solution. How do you respond to that type of argument? Well, I would preface it by saying that dropping out or the monastery of the mind approach that is millions of people are saying i'm not going to fight california i'm just leaving or i haven't watched the grammys the tonys the emmys or the oscar in years or i just turned off the nba i don't care or that can that's not working a lot of people have dropped out they're homeschooling their kids they just said you know what the country's unrecognizable and no more so in california biggest real estate market and a down real estate market is the Sierra foothills right now outside of Sacramento, where people from the Bay Area, families are just, and these are not conservatives, they're just moving in mass to get away from this toxic environment. So that's one approach. The other is, I think, the Claremont approach. And I think within limits, it's the only approach. And I say with limits. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't think we want to do what the left does in some cases. We do not want to swarm the home of Justice Sotomayor and threaten her because of to influence an impending. We don't want to have Mitch McConnell to go outside the doors of the Supreme Court and say, Sotomayor, 
Kagan, you don't know what's going to hit you. You sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. That's what Chuck Schumer did. Uh, so we, I don't think we want to do that. I don't think we want to burn cities and do things that they did. However, I do think we have to look at processes. And that means a concentrated effort to bring back, say, the singularity or the dominance of election day voting with ID. That, that seems to me the key, one of the key things. And I do think when you wake up this sleeping dragon and you poke him so much, then you, you they're shocked that Disney and aggregate with Target and the Dodgers and Anheuser-Busch, they've lost about $50 billion in lost sales, subscriptions, attendance, et cetera. And I think that is shock people, but I think they have to do that more and more. So there has to be an activist uh, counterpart to what we have to raise as much money as they're doing. And I, until we can get the states to agree not to have third-party ballot harvesting, not to have ballot curing, uh, not to allow ballots to be counted when there's only one name or the name doesn't match the register, I think then the states are going to have to say, you know what, we're going to de- adopt the red states. We're going to have the same laxity as you do on some of these, if it favors our cause. I hate to say that. I'll give you one final example. So I'm very sympathetic with a lot of people who are looking at the Trump indictments. And there's a lot on the conservative side that Jonathan Turley, Andy McCarthy, I know I like. And they're pointing out all of the self-created problems that Trump did, sloppiness, braggadocio, talking loosely. But they're not putting that in the larger context. All of what he did is comparable to what Joe Biden did. But Joe Biden's president. And he's had these documents for over a decade. For what purpose, he won't tell us. And they're sloppy. They're in a garage. They're the same thing. And he's dismissed any natural curiosity about it. And the prosecutors in the two cases are completely asymmetrical. And so, yes, the details matter about what Trump and maybe maybe had he done everything perfectly the way he should have, he wouldn't have been indicted. But it doesn't really matter because they're going to indict we, we saw that with the first impeachment. We saw that with the Russian disinformation laptop polls. We saw that with the first impeachment. So conservatives need to, they don't need to defend bad behavior, but they, they need to put it in a context and say, the, this generation of leftists is using this administrative state and the courts to wage war on us politically, to destroy people who have popular support elected officials and they don't do it symmetrically mm-hmm. and that has to preface every discussion and we believe me nobody on the left i i have a bad habit of watching just to see what they say on msnbc and cnn and reading politico and the new yorker nobody i found in the last week has said well donald trump should be Indicted, he should be convicted. However, when you look at that garage and you see all of those uh, boxes next to that Corvette, we, Joe's got to come forward. Or there seems to be some language in some of Hunter's email communications that resonate from maybe official documents. And we've got to check that out, too, to be fair. They don't they don't think that way. Not mm. at all. I haven't seen it. 
I haven't either. And I think you are you are right to watch what the left is saying. And for people who kind of just want to shut it all off and say, well, I only want to listen to the people I agree with. Um, I would say we need to know what they're what they are saying so that we know what their arguments are and we know what they're thinking about, because they will be informing at least half the country. Um, but you're absolutely right to, to put it in context and that the rule of law should govern everyone. And where if they're saying you know, that what President Trump did is wrong and it actually rises to the level of criminal activity, then why aren't they applying that same standard to Joe Biden, to Mike Pence, to you know, anyone else with classified documents. But it seems like there is such a disparity. And that's where conservatives get really frustrated. Um, but then then you see people just responding and saying, well, if my vote doesn't matter, then I'm just going to stay home. And I think that that's absolutely the worst possible response is to yeah, just say, is. OK, fine, we're done. Um, we've and done so it, we've how- done it before. We've, we've done it with the McCain and Romney candidacies. Neither one of them was really a conservative, but they were marginally better than Barack Obama. And it, and so I voted for both of them. But there were eight million people who dropped out and just said they were conservatives in those key states. And they just said, you know what? He's not conservative. I'm not going to vote for him. And I can, I'm very sympathetic to that. But, but and. There's no margin of error anymore because we're not dealing with Bill, even Bill Clinton's Democratic Party. We're dealing dealing now with revolutionaries, and they want to destroy the United States as we've seen it and create out of the ruin something quite different, much more much more left wing than Europe. When you when you see French intellectuals and politicians worried about the woke, they call it the woke virus that's coming into Europe. You know that we're to the left of Europe, and that's very hard to do. And so we we've got to get engaged everybody according to their station and we don't have to be amoral like the left but we have to say you know we're going to use what's necessary on their precedent they've given a lot of precedents they've told the right okay you guys when you come into power it's okay to impeach a president once he loses his majority in his first term in the House. It's okay to impeach him twice. It's okay to try him as a private citizen. It's okay to talk about tampering with the process, uh, how the Senate works, you know, filibuster. So they, they've given a lot of precedents. And the same thing with special counsels. As soon as the Republican president comes in, I'm sure that he's going to appoint a special counsel to look at not just Joe Biden, but the entire Biden consortium. And they're going to say, well, this is what you taught us how to do it. We're going to do it. And there might be a Bill Barr or somebody said, now, 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 we can't use tip for tat. And you want to say to Bill Barr, you told us that when Andrew McCabe lied four times under oath. And you told us that when James Comey claimed on 245 times he didn't tell the truth or he couldn't remember or he couldn't recall. And you told us that when Bob Mueller said he couldn't remember what Fusion GPS was, the steel dossier, while under oath. But you know what the left's doing right now? They are going to indict. They did indict a 10-year military veteran, Walt Nauta, a personal assistant from the Navy to work for Donald Trump, because under oath, when asked about moving boxes, he said, either I can't remember, I don't know. This is exactly what John Brennan said, CIA director, when he lied under oath. This is exactly what 
Except he even said no to a, to an answer that he knew was yes. Same thing with James Clapper. None of them faced repercussions. Had Bill Barr said to Andrew McCabe when he was attorney general, there's zero tolerance for lying under oath if you're an effect. There is for anybody, but especially an FBI director, and you are going to prison. Then that would have sent a message to everybody to stop it. Same thing with Brennan when he lied. Same thing with Clapper. But see, when... Barb takes what he thinks is the high road, then he destroys deterrence. And no, and then they go after, they say, well, you know, we're going to get this minor kid or a young adult and we're going to ruin his life because Trump may have told him something and then he didn't really understand the question or he, he said, I don't know. He's facing 10 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Those guys should be in prison for the rest of their life for lying to Congress under oath on major issues. We had Jennifer Gramholm, the energy to, Secretary, just go before Congress and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I lied to you under oath. I did have stocks. I should have told you when you confirmed me, and maybe that would have made a difference. And she lied. There's no consequences. And this type of disparity, um, Victor, is, is, I think, so frustrating to reasonable people and conservatives who do see this manipulation and weaponization of the rule of law and even um, you know, with with what I personally had to go through as as one of the targets of the 65 project that came after my bar license just because I dared to represent someone named Donald Trump and and going after 110 um, other Trump lawyers at, with the open advocacy for their project saying we are doing this intending to destroy their livelihoods and destroy their credibility. I mean, th- this is what they're doing. And some of the response to that has said, well, we need to then go after, you know, their bar licenses for frivolous things. And, you know, it, it, but it, so we do have to have boundaries and contours. But I think when you see the disparity of what's happening to some of the Trump lawyers versus what's happening to some of the actual, you know, the, the fusion GPS lawyers and um, you know, the, the, the people who literally lied to the FISA court, and got, you know, six months and they're back practicing law. I mean, that type of disparity is what is so frustrating. And so, so in just the last few minutes I have with you, um, and, and I so appreciate you unfolding all of this and unpacking it. Um, how do we start to then get the Republican party and conservatives to actually spend money and pay attention and time on the on the fights that we can win because just taking something like election integrity i mean i don't see the republican party nationally or even locally really doing a lot of these things other than you know maybe the florida blueprint and i think that ron DeSantis has a great plan for election integrity and that's why florida has done really well and we've seen how he took a you know a moderate at best you know purple state and really changed it in four years um and but, did, but it, he, it doesn't yeah he did it with not taking any prisoners he was tough he said here's where yeah. woke comes to die he took on disney and he, that's a good model to follow i think the the dnc in the national level is just destroy the rnc they have this vote blue they they raise billions of dollars and the, the right has nothing comparable and then when you look at the last elections the Republican presidential candidates, they've lost uh, seven out of the last eight popular votes. They haven't won since 1988, 51% of the vote when George H.W. Bush beat Dukakis. Every single election, they've either lost the popular vote or when they didn't lose the popular vote, and that was one time 
George H. George W. Bush in 2004. He still he barely got 50 percent. And so during that period, they had been very successful Republicans at the local and state level, capturing state legislatures, governors. So it suggests that that somebody at local state level is doing things right. And we have a completely incompetent or corrupt or something uh, RNC that doesn't know what they're doing generation after generation. They don't know how to fight. It's sort of the Mitt Romney, John McCain, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan mentality. And they seem to be comfortable with losing because they don't lose themselves. And that I mean, the MAGA agendas challenge that, but we need far more because the RNC needs to completely get tough and at the national level. Republicans are doing very well locally and regionally at the state, but not at the national level. Mm, really well said. And and I would agree with that on the MAGA agenda that it um, the fervor and the fight is there, but uh, but the strategy um, a lot of times is is lacking. And I see that and that concerns me in the Trump 2024 campaign, particularly um, yeah, to say, I, I okay, think everybody does. I think everybody <laughs> does not want ads run on Fox making fun of attacking Ron DeSantis from the left. I don't think that's wise and that we're exactly. watching. That. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that's going to be damaging to the, to the overall movement. And I would love to see that going very differently, but from a scope of, um, of just a, a forward looking perspective, because thankfully this primary will, it'll be a long year, but, but we'll get over it. Um, I, I guess just closing thoughts and do we still have hope that if enough of us understand this and take heed of the, the warning that you're giving us, um, do you still have hope for our country? I do. There was just a, uh, I don't know if you saw the latest Gallup poll on asking Americans, 5,000 of them, it was a huge poll. Do you identify as conservative, liberal, or moderate? Uh, the majority, I mean, not the majority, but 38%, for almost 40% said conservative. The next was moderate, 34, and the least, least popular was liberal. And so, and that was across all age groups. So, the, and then when you look at the con- traditional Democratic constituencies, Black, Asian, and um, Hispanics, there's already starting, especially with Hispanics and Asians, they're st- starting to crumble when they look at the transgender issue, when they look at the affirmative action issue in case of Asians, when they look at the open border for Hispanics. So they understand that this progressive agenda is a bunch of very elite minorities and wealthy white people on the two coasts that are never subject because of their wealth and influence to the consequences that fall on others from their ideology. And I think that gives hope if you can tap that, if we have leaders that are skilled and understand kind of in a populist fashion that people, if they don't come across as elitists that just talk about capital gains, capital gains, capital gains all the time, you know, like a George H.W. Bush did or McCain or something, but just talk in a broad area about energy prices, the cost of living, crime, and not in a, you know, but not in a vague generic sense, but really detail. Stop the crimes, close the border, period. Not, well, oh, let's discuss comprehensive immigration form. Let's have a bipartisan Amazon. Let's have a guest worker. That's not what is going to save the Republican Party. 
Mm, well, really well said. And um, Victor Davis Hanson, I really appreciate your time and uh, talking with you today. The documentary is called uh, Civilization in the Danger Zone, and it is on Salem now. And uh, thank you so much for your time and for being willing just to continue to fight this fight, because I know a lot of people are discouraged and are checking out. And you are one that is standing boldly proclaiming the truth. And we need to hear more of it and be encouraged. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Jenna. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. So in the foregoing segment, and if you missed it, please go back and listen to that interview with Victor Davis Hanson. I thought he just expressed so well this kind of third way that uh, we have because typically, and I know that people are so frustrated that there's no accountability, there's no action, there's nothing that you know conservatives are getting done uh, to hold accountable all of these runaway leftist tyrants. And the response to that generally is, well, then let's you know, fight fire with fire. And if the, the Democrats and the left are destroying our country and tearing down our constitution and not obeying our laws, well, then why do we care? And so this kind of principled loserdom, right? But we as conservatives, and especially as Christians, always have to be very concerned about staying within the contours and the margins of the law. Um, Otherwise, we are just helping the left tear down this country. But what we can do, and what I thought Victor Davis Hanson expressed so well, is kind of this third option that traditionally conservatives, even even people like me, um, and I think this is because of my legal background, um, are so generally concerned about precedent and to not run afoul, well, how can the left manipulate this precedent in the future that we want to be really careful not to exercise this particular power in this certain way because we don't want to set a bad precedent, that we're losing opportunities in the here and now to have the conservative wins and the best outcomes using power of the U.S. Constitution and of government and of law in a way that can affect real change today. And I think that this is where I've actually shifted um, in in my understanding of this based on this conversation with Victor Davis Hanson, and I was so grateful um, he came on to discuss this, because this is what I see, for example, Governor DeSantis doing in Florida with these very specific outcome-oriented wins that are fully within the margins of the law and the Constitution. It's not just, you know, burn it all down. Uh, But it's actually saying, let's have the wins now and let's build toward a better society. And then as we get these wins, we can just continue to fight for the good precedent and lay the foundation. And it's really, it's incrementalism in a way that actually makes sense. And so I would encourage everyone on this, you know, wonderful Friday morning to think about this over the weekend, that we can't just respond to this inaction and this frustration with this kind of um, anarchist sort of view of, well, let's just, you know, go back and take take back our country in any means and any method, because the ends don't justify the means. Um, that's specifically against the nature of the rule of law. But what we can do is say, let's use 
the powers that we do have in government. Let's use our majorities. Let's use our executive branch. Let's use the judicial branch in a way that will give us significant conservative outcomes right now and then continue building on that each and every day for tomorrow. So I hope that encouraged you and I hope that you will um, continue to think about that over the weekend and as always continue to promote the truth of the gospel of Christ in every sphere including our civil society and our community together that is our body politic and I'll see you Monday morning. Make it a great weekend.